Steve and Joellen Bechtel just hit me up afterwards. <laughs> well, as, as the, they're getting seated, if you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to continue our sermon series this morning through Advent, through the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. And we'll be starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 this morning. And as you turn there, uh, we, we cannot, no matter who you are, no matter how you feel about the Christmas season, like it's here, right? We're in like full-fledged Christmas mode now. We can't escape it. It's, it's here among us. And no matter whether you're somebody that loves it and like goes all in for everything Christmas and nostalgia and, and all of that, you're somebody that is indifferent towards the whole thing. Maybe you're somebody that doesn't like this time of year. Um, no matter where you're at on that spectrum, culturally, Christmas is a time of rejoicing. So whether you are feeling happy or sad or whatever, it's a time where we intentionally, uh, as a culture, get happy. But in the design of the church calendar year, the season of Advent is actually a season of fasting and preparation, not a season of feasting and celebration. The church historically has treated the days leading up to Christmas as a time for all of us intentionally not to put on a happy face, but to actually ponder the darkness that's in the world, to stare it down. And the purpose of this is not to be morbid killjoys, but to lead us into a greater joy when Christmas actually gets here and we can celebrate the birth of Jesus together. And, and that reality of the Advent season points us to a deeper structure of the Christian life. And, and British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes that this way. And if you're in a community group here, you probably have heard this in recent weeks. Lloyd-Jones says, it may sound paradoxical, but you must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Let me say that again. It may sound paradoxical, but you must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Now, I was out for a run last week, and when I'm running, that's usually the time when I'm thinking the most clearly, um, and it's also the time whenever, like, just reality tends to, to hit me and set in. And it was the first day of December, and I was thinking about Christmas coming up, thinking about, like, the Advent season, and all of a sudden, my mind just flushed with everything dark and, and just wrong with the world that's happened to me or my friends and family over the last year. And, and I intentionally, in the spirit of Advent, when I got home, I tried to catalog the things that went through my mind. This is just, a, this is just some of the lists that went through my mind that's happened to me or my friends or family this year. Death, miscarriage, infertility, suicide, crippling loneliness, substance abuse, divorce, sexual abuse, cancer, depression, chronic illness. That's just my list that flooded into my mind while I was running. So my question for Mr. Lloyd-Jones and for all of us this morning is how in the world, when I face that down honestly, how in the world am I supposed to not despair? How when I actually stare into the darkness, how can that lead me into joy? 
Why would I not just run the other way and do what so many of us honestly try to do during this time of year, which is to distract ourselves into oblivion? Why would I not do that instead? And this week in Matthew chapter one, we're gonna look at the story of the birth of Jesus. And in this beloved story, we see how because God has come near to us in Jesus, how we can honestly stare at the darkness and face it and yet still have true joy. So if you would look with me at Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18, going to verse 25. This is God's word. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Would you pray with me one more time as we approach God's word together? Father, we pray that as we look at this text of scripture, that you would open our eyes, both to the reality of life in this world, but also to the reality of the hope that has sprung in in Jesus Christ. Bring us through this time in your word to be able to more honestly look at what actually is in our life and this world, and to also look more honestly and to be able to rejoice because of who you are and what you've done. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I wanna look at, at two aspects, particularly of this story, that help us to stare down the darkness and still rejoice. The first is the genesis of Jesus, continued, and the second is the scandal of Jesus. So the genesis of Jesus, continued, and the scandal of Jesus. First, let's look at the genesis of Jesus. And this text here in Matthew 1.18 flows out of the entire genealogy that Matthew lays out in verses 1 through 17 that Greg preached for us last week. But in these verses, Matthew is particularly zooming in on verse 16. And the text that we have in front of us this week is him explaining what goes on in this particular verse. So look with me, Matthew 1.16. It says, and Jacob fathered Joseph the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So after 15 verses of so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and so-and-so fathered so-and-so, why does Matthew then not mention Jesus' dad? If Mary was just his mother, where's his dad? And especially central to the mind of Matthew's Jewish readers, like if Joseph was the one in the line of David and he didn't father Jesus, then how can Jesus actually be the Messiah, the son of David? 
And that's what Matthew's after here in verses 18 to 25. He wants to answer those questions. And this text we have before us forces us to wrestle with what seems like absurdity on the surface. The Christian teaching of the virgin birth. Or as we're going to talk about it this morning, I think a little bit more precisely, the virginal conception of Jesus. I think we all at some level, right, when we read about the virgin birth of Jesus, have the same reaction that I suspect Joseph had when Mary came to him and said, hey, Joseph, I don't know how to tell you this, but like, God's the dad. And we're all like, what? <laughs> like, excuse me for a second? And, and this teaching of Christianity is hard for us to swallow as modern people. And I think it was just as hard to swallow in the ancient world. Like, they weren't... Um, they didn't have modern medicine, but they knew where babies came from. Let's just say it like that. But I think this is a teaching that, that if we were honest, a lot of us here who have been Christians for a little while, we'd probably say, I know this is important, but I don't really know why, other than the fact that like the Old Testament said it was going to happen. But other than that, I don't really know why Jesus had to be born of a virgin or what impact that has in my life at all. And so this morning, I want to actually camp out on this weird particular teaching of Christianity because I think if we do, it helps give us hope and joy as we stare down the darkness of our world. So here we go. So what I want to show you in this is that logically speaking and, and getting at the theological concept of the virgin birth what was necessary about it was the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And the part of Mary being a virgin was like extra icing on the cake to show the absurdity of God's grace. So let's talk about this together. Now think about a classic chase scene in a movie. Right, so, so somebody is being chased down by a group of people and they're running through back alleyways and they're coming around and eventually they get to a spot and they face it and they stop in their tracks and they're at a dead end, right? They see a big chain link fence with barbed wire. They have two high brick buildings on either side. There's nowhere else to go. It's a dead end. They're trapped with no way out. That is how Matthew wants us to see humanity here at the end of his genealogy. Every person named in that genealogy not only was a perpetrator of some type of evil and, and some of a particularly acute type of evil, but on top of that, all of those people listed in the genealogy died. They experienced the curse of sin in their own body. And on top of that, the exile that Matthew speaks of dispersed God's people all across the world where they were being oppressed by foreign world powers. Because of sin and death, in other words, what started at creation, God's project with human beings to have his knowledge spread across the world as the waters cover the sea, that project seemed to be at a dead end. Humanity was stuck with no way out. We were trapped in the dead end of our sin. And you see, that's why Matthew is so adamant to highlight this point early on in his gospel about Jesus being a new Genesis. So if you remember from last week, Greg talked about how in verse one of this whole gospel, uh, Matthew says, the Genesis of Jesus Christ. 
he calls back to the beginning and he says, here's a new Genesis. And here he's doing the same thing. He's saying, Jesus is a way out of this dead end. And that's particularly why Matthew, and if you read Luke's account of this in Luke 1, why they highlight the Holy Spirit as the primary actor here. Generation after generation, people came into the world by means of normal human procreation. And generation after generation, they experienced the curse of sin and they died. Until Jesus came along. That's what Matthew wants us to see. Now, remember how God created the world. This is really important if we want to see what Matthew's doing here. So it says in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. It's going to, ooh, you know. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then in verse, chapter 2, verse 7, this is when God is creating the man, especially Adam. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed the breath, that's the word for spirit, breathed the Holy Spirit of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. You see, just like God's spirit hovered over the waters, and breathed life into the dust to bring about God's original creation, so now the Holy Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary to bring about a new creation, a new human who would not be plagued by sin and death like all of us. Now notice, it's not the fact that Mary never had sex that makes her without sin. I think that's a common, like a common trope that we fall back on. Like, just because Mary didn't have sex is not why Jesus was not sinful. Um, Mary was a sinner too. She was fully capable of passing on that same sin nature. What kept Jesus from sin was the Holy Spirit miraculously intervening to bring new life about, just like he did in the beginning. And that is good news for all of us. And I think the, the fact that Mary was a virgin at the precise time of this action highlights then the miraculous power of God to bring new creation about in this shipwrecked world. Like on one level, like the, the Old Testament prophecies about it aside, just from a, a logical level, Mary could have been married to, to Joseph and having regular marital relations with him when God's spirit broke in and did this work. But how much more so does it highlight God's power that she was a virgin when this happened? The virgin birth highlights what Jesus' name means, what we read in verse 21, that God has broken in to save his people from their sins. Now, I love the, the catechism that we've been reading the last couple weeks about the virgin birth in our service, that, that second question that it asks is, is a question that just in the asking of it, I think, instructs us, right? So the first question is like, what is the teaching about the virgin birth? And then it asks, of what benefit is that to you? What a weird question. We don't think that way at all. And, and this is what it says. Let me just read it for us again. He is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin 
in which I was conceived and born. In other words, because the Holy Spirit broke through the wall of sin and death that trapped all of us in the conception of Jesus, we can have hope that our lives and the life of this world is not a dead end, that we are not trapped. The virgin birth of Christ grounds the new birth, like our supernatural being made into new creatures by God's grace and Holy Spirit, and it grounds the resurrection, the breaking in of God's new life into the world. So let me ask you this. Are you someone here this morning and maybe you've never encountered Jesus personally in your own life. And you're here, and if you're honest, you would say, man, I feel like my life is at a dead end. I feel like my, my choices have gotten me into a hole, and I can't seem to break out. That is a great place to start. That's a prerequisite for Christianity, is being in a place like that. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know the hope of Christmas is that in the darkness of your life, you can know that your life is not a dead end. Like Jesus has introduced a life-saving cure into the diseased veins of this world, starting with his conception by the Holy Spirit. And you can tap into that today by faith and start getting your life back. That's the hope of the gospel. You can be born again today. And for all of us in here who have experienced the transforming power of Jesus' grace, the virgin birth would have us remember that the life-saving power of Jesus is in our veins and will one day spread its way all through this world and transform this place into what it was originally designed to be. Remember that word advent means coming. And advent highlights not just the first coming of Jesus into the world as a man, but it also invites us to look forward to the day when Jesus will come again. So when you doubt that your life is going anywhere, when you doubt that God is at work in your own life, when, when those sin patterns that you're struggling with just won't go away, when those thoughts from your past of the sin that's been done to you like threaten to swallow you up with shame, when you're overwhelmed with the evil and suffering that you see out there in the world more broadly, Christmas would tell you, look to the promise of the virgin birth. That no matter how dark things look, because Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have that first whisper that God is making all things new. And that's a whisper that he will confirm with a shout as his res at his resurrection. When Jesus blows back through the wall that traps all of us in the dead end of sin. And he'll confirm it again when he comes in power to make all things new. The virgin birth helps us to face down the darkness of the world with hope. And with all of that said, the virgin birth does force us all, even with all that good benefit to us, I think it is still hard for us because it forces us in, in our modern world to say that the natural world is not all that there is. It, it presses up uh, us up against that. But if we already as Christians believe that, if we believe that the natural world is not all that there is, then I want us all to be encouraged 
it is perfectly rational to believe in something like the virgin birth. That at least it's possible. L- listen to how New Testament scholar N.T. Wright talks about this. I think this is brilliant. He says, I can't prove the virginal conception of Jesus, and I don't think you can explain it the same way you can the resurrection. He, he's, he's like one of the world-renowned re- scholars on the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection happened in the way the New Testament says it does, and frankly, if it didn't, I can't as a historian explain how Christianity got off the ground. Love how he throws that in there. If the resurrection happened in the way New Testament says it does, next slide, please. Then that forces me to hold my modern mind open. If God really was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, ought I not expect some other strange things as well? In other words, given the claims of Christianity, the virgin birth is not crazy or irrational. No more crazy or irrational than saying that God created everything out of nothing. But the virgin birth is the most bald, unverifiable claim to a miracle, I think, that we have in the New Testament. Like, you can't prove that. But empirical proof is probably not what we should be looking for anyway. Because the reason why God himself gave for why he chose for this all to happen through a virgin, he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. And I think in this way, the conception of Jesus accentuates the reality that the Christian faith itself is inherently miraculous. Like we say, God became a man and God is with us. That is the essence of Christianity and that in and of itself is a miracle. The virgin birth is fitting with all of that. It helps give us hope in the midst of the darkness. So that's the first way, the first aspect of the story. The second one that gives us hope in the darkness is the scandal of Jesus. The scandal of Jesus. Now, here's a question that's interesting to consider. How would the news that Joseph and Mary received, that that the baby that they were going to have together would be the promised son who would be called God with us, how would that have landed on them in the situation that we find them in here? Like, how would they have experienced the angel's proclamation to them about their child as good news for them in their own current circumstance? I think our, like, familiarity with this story actually really keeps us from seeing the truth of that. So so let me just paint for all of us, like, culturally, what this would have been like for them in their own first century world. So first of all, we got to understand engagement in their world was a lot different than ours. Engagement was a formal contractual obligation. It was really similar to a business contract that you couldn't back out of without severe repercussions. And it was a year long, which is pretty wild to think about. It was much less like an informal agreement like we have today. Additionally, the couple, while they were in this engagement period, they wouldn't have been allowed to be alone together at all. So as much as anybody else could control that, they would not have been alone together in that whole year before the wedding day. So think about it. They they probably didn't know each other very well. Not only that, but the culture of the time would have expected a divorce via very public proceedings if a wife was to be unfaithful to her husband. That would have been the norm and the expectation. 
And because engagement was treated almost as serious as marriage, the same thing was true for an engagement. And in fact, if a husband failed to divorce his wife after grounds of sexual infidelity, then culturally speaking, they would view that man as a pimp and his wife as a prostitute. So Mary, think about all this. Mary, who is legally bound to Joseph, but has virtually no emotional or relational intimacy with him, has to go to him and say, God is the dad. And then Joseph has to endure the shame of a wife that cheated on him, and Mary has to live in the shame of being divorced for her infidelity. That's, That's the bomb that would have dropped on their lives. And even after the angel cleared everything up for them and they decided to stay together, they're viewed socially by their community as a pimp and a prostitute for a long time. Think about the shame of that. Think about how hard that would have been been to deal with day in and day out. They were viewed as outlandish liars and shameful outcasts in their community. God must have seemed so far away from them. Maybe even at times, even though an angel visited them, probably absent entirely, things must have looked so dark. And for many of you, this is probably your reality right now. If you were honest, you might say, at least at times, God feels entirely absent from my life. Like the, the cloud of depression just like won't lift. Or my marriage seems like it just won't ever get better, or that grief that you're supposed to be over by now threatens to overtake you moment by moment, or your own spiritual life just feels as dry and barren as it's ever been, like God is far away and he doesn't care what's happening in your own life. And to get out the good news of this text, let me just think, I want us to think about one thing, and I think all of us can relate to this, whether we, we are parents of children or not. When a parent sees their child in pain or hears the unique specific cry of their child in pain, there's two unique reactions that that come up in the heart of a parent. The first one is, I need to fix this right away. I need to deal with what's going on. But the other impulse in the heart of the parent is, I need to get close to my child. I need to draw near to them. I need to be with them and wrap them up in my arms in their pain. And the good news for Mary and Joseph and their darkness and for us in ours is that God didn't become a man simply to rid us of our problem. God became a man to stand side by side with us in the midst of our problem, in the midst of the darkness. And think about this for Mary and Joseph. When God felt incredibly far away, even on those nights when they crawled into bed, even after getting married and the social shame was devastating, God was literally with them in their house, in the womb of Mary. God was having eye slits cut for him and was forming fingers and toes inside Mary's womb as she wept over all the comments and sideways glances that she received. And you see, that's the hope of the incarnation. The scandal of his birth, 
the hope that God is with you, working out salvation, even in the darkest places. And that hope doesn't end at his birth. Because you see, where else in the life of Jesus did it appear that God was absent? Like where else was Jesus a scandal to his society and those who were close to him? Where ultimately did Jesus stand side by side with us in the darkness? On the cross. Right? As Jesus died on the cross, God with us experienced the absence of God's presence. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even in the middle of that moment, God was with him. His spirit was sustaining him in righteous obedience to the end. And in that death and agony, we see God with us even in the depth of our suffering. And because this is true, because the incarnation is true, from his birth until his death, because God was with us from his birth until his death, you can know that from your birth until your death, even in the midst of your darkest moments, God is with you and is working it all for good. To paraphrase that great verse from Romans 8, if God is with us, who can be against us? Because of how he was born and how he died, we know he's with us even in the darkest places, even when he feels like he is absent. There's a, a, a little known uh, Christmas hymn that was, it was originally written in Dutch and it was translated into English about 100 years ago. Um, But it's called Come and Stand Amazed, You People. And I've just come across it this Advent season. And it's been rocking my world. It's so good. Um, But listen to how it, it encapsulates this truth beautifully. It says, come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love, love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. And then it it turns to prayer. Light of life, dispel my darkness. Let your frailty strengthen me. Oh, Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. This Christmas we all can stare at the darkness and yet still rejoice because God became a man both to dispel our darkness, to deal with it, to rid us of it forever and because he stands side by side with us in it. Emmanuel, God is with us so we can rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in Christ, you've given us new possibility and new horizon that we never even could see for our own life in our own sin. Thank you that none of us here is destined to a dead end because the power of Jesus Christ by his spirit is on offer to us. Help us, Lord, this Advent season as we look into all of the things in our lives that are so hard. 
Help us to be able to rejoice, to be able to see side by side with that reality that you have become a man to deal with our darkness and you've become a man to embrace us in the middle of it. Lord, help us to believe this truth and help us this Christmas to be able to truly, from the depths of our heart, to be able to rejoice in who you are. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.